Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Michael Hines with us. Now, irony has a funny way of showing itself years later. Michael Hines began elementary school as a student loving school and playing music on multiple instruments, solving puzzles, immersing himself in art, and wondering what the future would hold. Once he graduated high school, he was in the bottom 5% of his graduating class. Years later, he finds himself stewarding one of the largest school districts on Long Island, New York, as the superintendent of Patchogue Medford Schools. Mike has served in almost every position in a school system, from elementary teacher, assistant principal, principal, business official, assistant superintendent, and now superintendent. The road to success has very little to do with what he learned in school and very much with what he knows to be true outside of it. People say you're going to have to change to fit into the system. He says, how about you change the system so we can all fit? Welcome, Dr. Michael Hines. How are you? I am well. How are you? Great. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. Thank you. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am ready. Wonderful. Tell us a little bit about your leadership path. Uh, I think my leadership path is somewhat different than most. And because my area of leadership is in schools, I'll start with a very quick story. Mm-hmm. When I was a student in school, I hated school. If anything, I couldn't wait to leave once I graduated. In the beginning, I loved elementary school. And right. when it was junior high, I struggled more socially than anything. Uh, my relationships with teachers wasn't really at an all-time high. And then by the time I graduated, I graduated in the bottom 5% of my class. Not the top 5%, the bottom 5%. Mm. And it's pretty much shared with me that I, I wasn't college material and wasn't going to make it to college. A teacher and, shared this with you? Uh, a guidance counselor. Oh. So in many ways, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. One thing that helped me was sports. I, I love tennis, and I always thought I was going to be a professional tennis player. Clearly, that didn't happen mm-hmm. <laughs> because, because of my ability. And I did make it to college. I went to Suffolk for one year, probably the hardest year I've ever had great school, very rigorous, and I started to find what my real passion was, which back then it was psychology and trying to help others. I ended up in education as an elementary teacher by happenstance. I was going the psychology route. I read a very quick story in my sister's classroom who was teaching kindergarten at the time. I was reading a big book called Caps for Sale, hardest book I ever read. (laughs) I thought I bombed. The kids were excited. They were hugging me, asking me to come back, and from that moment on, I knew that's where I wanted to be. That I was wanted it, to huh? be in school. So when you fast forward 20 years later, the ultimate irony is I'm now leading a school district for someone who didn't enjoy the experience as a former student. 
So my path, I think, in many ways was non-traditional, also with the fact that I've almost held every single position in a school district, from a teacher to an assistant principal to a principal at all three levels to an assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction, for business, teaching at the graduate level, doctorate level, post-doctorate level. So I've seen from this system, pre-K through way past adulthood, Mm -hmm. as far as what it means to be in schools. I'm here for one reason and one reason only, and that's to serve others. That was actually going into my next question. How would you describe your leadership style? I liken it to two things. Uh, one is I'm here to serve others. I mm-hmm. really believe my sole role is to enable people to maximize their potential in any way possible. How can I augment what you already have? And I look at leadership almost like a gearbox. If you're driving stick you mm-hmm. know, in a car, you know, you go from first to second to third gear to fifth gear, you downshift, sometimes you stay in neutral. Sometimes I'm democratic, sometimes when I have to be autocratic, when a crisis is happening, but you have to know how to shift gears depending on the situation. But the one gear I'll always stay in is making sure that kids get what they need, mm-hmm. parents feel like they're respected, and making sure our staff is really second to none as far as what I can do for them. You mentioned that you did some work in psychology. Yeah. Was that helpful in how you think about leadership now? Yeah, I think it's helpful in two things. One is a lot of my favorite theorists worked on developmental psychology in, in a sense. So big fan of Maslow, Piaget, Eric Erickson, uh, Kohlberg, moral development, all those different things. John Maxwell, he's a theorist, but I know... Um, I think you're a fan of his. I certainly am as well. Mm -hmm. So I try to glean and take little bits and pieces of everyone and take the things that really resonate with me the most and make sure that it's part of my DNA Mm -hmm. and it's part of how I operate. So with the developmental theorists, that is more toward my leadership as far as how a school should function and what's best for kids. When you're serving others, we have 42 administrators here in Patchogue, Medford, so it's a pretty large school district, at least from a Long Island standpoint. You have to know how to work with people. I think John Maxwell said leadership is really nothing more than influence, like you're influencing, hopefully in a positive way. And for me, I can't think of a better way to work with others than to hopefully influence them in in a way that we need to serve others. That's great. And yes, I am a, a John Maxwell I'm on his team, actually. He mentors me, which is really fantastic. That's a blessing. It It is. So tell us which quote or quotes about leadership speaks to you and why. I would say most of them really come from Maxwell, to be honest with you, the law of the lid. So when we look at the law of the lid and looking at people's potential, you know, the Ray Kroc story, when you think of the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership and all those different vignettes, that he provides. For me, I think just having a servant mindset uh, more than anything, I don't think it's really a quote that stands out. I think it's more of, like I said, the bits and pieces of others, most notably him, mm-hmm. ironically enough. It wasn't always that way. When I first moved into a leadership role, it was my way of the highway. It was, you take it or leave it. I know what's going to be best for everyone, and I'm not going to listen to anyone else. This is the way it's going to be, because that's what was modeled for me. And it wasn't until someone actually tapped me on the shoulder and said, listen, you know, that mindset that you have may serve you well a portion of the time, but you need to really expand your knowledge based on understanding of the human condition if you're going to really serve others in the capacity that you want to. 
And the first person this gentleman uh, turned me on to was Maxwell. And I read the 21 Irrefutable Laws probably 10 times. We had a book talk about it last year here. You did. We did. For every single school leader here, we went through every single law and we talked about it. And Like a know, mastermind group. It was. It was wonderful. And I have to be honest with you, we had quite a few many book talks. That was the one I think that resonated most with everyone because they took different pieces like the law of timing. Like the law mm-hmm. of timing to me is so important if you truly understand the premise of it. So there are certain things that we use every single day and many times we don't even know about it. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was understanding this role that we're in is a privilege. It's an honor to do what you're doing. And if you do it the right way, you have to understand that the scope of people that you influence over time exponentially becomes more and more. You need to handle this with great care. It's very important. You know, he talks a lot about valuing people. Totally. And so you're you're speaking into that. As soon as I started talking to you, as soon as I started doing research on what you do, I can tell that you value people, and that's something that's important to you. It is. So in some instances, we look at Andy Hargraves out of Boston College, and Michael Fullen, too, talks about professional capital. And what does that actually mean? We're not talking money. We're talking about people and Mm -hmm. what they have to offer. And really the notion is... How do you take the talent and collective wisdom that you have here already and augment it in some way and allow them the professional courtesy and decision-making that they've been trained to do and allow them to do it and you step out of the way? And I think for many people that's very hard to do because by nature, and I'm generalizing, many leaders are control freaks and they want to control yeah, I would input, say that. <laughs> input and output. You know, initially that's what leads you to this position, but right. the funny thing is over time, like you hear the paradoxes of less is more and all these different things that don't make sense, but it's really true. The more you give up, the more you gain. Mm-hmm. The more you release, the more you get back in return. Mm-hmm. Um, valuing people, not controlling them, and trying to assist them is by far the number one, I want to say, cultural shift that we try to move in our organization here. Mm-hmm. And so I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask because I, I want my listeners to really get who you are. What type of leader are you inspired by and why? You know, it's funny. There are so many different people that stand out. I, I have two. And you're asking a type, but I'll, I'll give you two people in particular. Abraham Lincoln is certainly one of my favorites. You know uh, that Maxwell has a whole curriculum on Abraham Lincoln. I did not know that. Well, that's good for me to know. I have two pictures that are real lithographs that were given to me as gifts, as a reminder. Mm -hmm. So the thing about Lincoln that really stands out to me is one story by Jackie Joyce Kearns. She wrote this great book about Lincoln, A Team of Rivals. Great book. One thing from that book that really stood out was when Lincoln got upset which he did, if you think about the times he was a leader. Mm-hmm. How do you not become upset during the Civil War? And it was something called the hot letter. You know, if a general wasn't doing something he wanted him to do, he would handwrite a letter while he's agitated and upset. But then what he would do is he would put that letter in a drawer, he would let it sit there for a day or two, and he'd come back and he'd reread the letter. And if he still felt the same way, he would send it out. And if he didn't, he would keep it, but he wouldn't send it out. And there's a whole litany of letters that he never sent out, which are very interesting. So the channeling of your emotions to not get too emotional and become overreactive to when things happen to live in the present moment, those are some of the qualities that I thought from Lincoln 
were really amazing, coupled with the fact that he really fought for justice when it wasn't the popular thing to do. The other is John Adams. John Adams is almost the opposite as far as demeanor. You know, he's a recalcitrant man who loves to argue and was always worried about would he be held in the same esteem as all the other founding fathers and such. But the one thing about what I loved about John Adams was as argumentative and as upset as he can be, if you follow and you read the letters between him and Abigail Adams, it's the most amazing thing. And he was always grounded by his wife, almost like the yin to his yang, you know, in, mm-hmm, in some way. Mm-hmm. And you read the love story between the two of them and how much he relied on her counsel and all those different things. And basically, you can't be the Lone Ranger when you're trying to do things. You need others that ground you, that see things from a different perspective. And you need to be open to allow that to happen. And that's what I got from John Adams. I certainly have that with my wife, Erin, who grounds me in, in many ways. And we write letters back and forth. And so I learned that the most from John Adams, interesting enough. And then the other would be John Maxwell. I mean, as far as the way you go about your business and the way that you prepare for things and the way that ultimately in the end, what are you here for? You know, the ultimate question is, what are you your doing purpose. this for? Mm-hmm. What is the purpose of you doing this? And if the purpose is to make sure that the lives of others are getting what they need at the sacrifice of what you're doing for yourself personally, then you're pretty much doing the right thing. And so I, I would say collectively between the three of them, they resonate with me the most. That was a very long answer. But no, I loved it. You know, I want to go back to Abraham Lincoln and the fact that when he wrote these letters and when he was heated, then he put him away. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, the age of email, it's a lot easier to send. And I know for me, I had to learn to step back because I tend to make decisions rather quickly. So how have you incorporated that in your life? That's a great question. So I'm working with a mindfulness coach. Um, which What's his name, Corey? Corey Mascara. Um, he's going to be on our show. He is an amazing man. I tell him almost every day. So I'm working with Corey, and he asks you up front, what do you want to get out of this, you know, working one-on-one? And my biggest concern about my personal life and professional life is that I'm always connected online with my phone. In many ways, I'm trapped in this hell of being connected 24-7 and responding to everything like Mm -hmm. in real time. So what he's worked on with me, and this is my second day doing it, I've tried before without him, and clearly I've fallen short. So with his help, I'm only answering my emails and my texts and looking at social media three times a day in very quick snippets, 15, 20 minutes, maybe a half hour each time, as opposed to always browsing, always connecting, always saying something, because we do that all the time. It's almost like we're addicted to these technology devices. So I probably answer almost 200 emails a day. Is it because you want to clear out the list? And I'm always thinking everything's an emergency, Mm -hmm. especially with emails. You have to be very careful in what you say and how what the intention is and how people perceive whatever it is that you're emailing. So I'm very careful now when I bundle my time when I'm answering either online or offline at distinctive times. And that frees me up to do other things that are more important and to dig deeply into the work that leaders do, Mm -hmm. whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So the hot letter for me was the first signal that I need to learn to not fire off emails or send things 
when we're emotionally charged because that comes to get you in the end. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all been there at some point. Right. And uh, this is my first step moving forward. And I have to say, even though I'm in the embryonic stages of How doing long have it, you been doing that? Not long. We just started. But you go through a withdrawal when you're connected to your phone all the time. <laughs> you do. It's like it, it's, it's insane. Speaking to and even I'm like be speaking this way, like, <laughs> I, like I'm addicted to a, a technology device is silly. But I, but mm-hmm. I was, and I think like like many things, the first thing is admitting that you have an addiction, yeah. <laughs> have an addiction or a right. problem in some way. And I think many leaders, whether they are a CEO, they're a superintendent, they always want to be connected. They want to know what's going on. They want to be able to respond. And so technology has made it easier, but there is some giving up on the back end when you're operating that way. And I've been feeling it for the past couple of years. And this is my first step moving forward, trying something different. And is there a shift in your disposition and your way of being? It is. I'm aware of the present moment in front of me, as opposed to worrying about what happened in the past or what's about to happen in the future. I am more in the present moment. And that, to me, has been very freeing in some ways and allows me to make decisions with clear judgment. And that's the way we always want to make a decision and not worrying about past or future. It's actually making a decision in the now. And it's very hard when you are, in a Pavlovian way, responding to dings and vibrations and all those other things that happen. And I have to say, I really believe that's going to be the wave of the future as far as people taking a step back from technology at the CEO level. I think that's going to be the next step moving forward. You know, Mike, I'm sitting here, I'm so completely convicted because I feel I'm addicted to my cell phone. Yep. But I also want to plug Corey here because I, I've met him and I think he's wonderful. Yes. So Corey Mascara, do you have any contact information for him? He has a website, Long Island Mindfulness, I believe. If you type his name in, it'll pop right up. It's Corey, C-O-R-Y, Mascara, M-U-S. C-A-R-A, and I think it's Long Island Mindfulness. I believe it's Long Island Mindfulness, and if you go to his website, he's been on Dr. Oz a few times. What he's working on with me is for me to learn how to meditate, which is an amazing experience. I think we have preconceived notions of what it is to meditate and how one should do it. He throws all those myths out of the way and works on you in a very personable way, you Mm -hmm. know, to take you as a person where you want to go for you to benefit and to really learn how to live in the moment and i've seen a profound difference with me at work certainly at home i'm a lot more at peace and a lot more at ease it's uh, probably the best thing i've done professionally over the past 20 years you know you're probably one of the most self-aware ed leaders that i've spoken to which says a lot it makes sense also because of the work that you're doing. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you. So tell us what's the best, this is a John Maxwell question, by the way, what's the best advice you've ever received? I would say to develop three core values and to make them part of your DNA, to have non-negotiables. So whatever those core values are, they're non-negotiables. They are the three, the only three things that you'll die on a hill for. So we have to be careful which hills we die on. Mm. Or else we're going to be dying on hills all day long. That's true. You know? So you have to know mm. when to pick your battles. At first, it was a very hard exercise for me to go through because there are so many things that one can think of when it comes to your core values or three things that are non-negotiables. One is integrity. Um, having integrity to stick to your guns even when it's not a popular decision to know that it's the right thing to do because you need to live with yourself and you need to know that what you're doing is the right thing even though others may say that's not necessarily so the second has to do with relationships relationships 
at this level, whether it's a superintendent or whether it's a building principal or whatever leadership role you may have, it is all about working with other people. And even if you don't necessarily agree with people, they're still people nonetheless. And you need to treat them with respect and your ideas as their ideas. They just, maybe there's a mismatch, but you still need to honor and respect that. And if you can do that, you can get a heck of a lot further with what you want to do if you have that disposition and that mindset. It's been very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Because it's very easy to dig your feet in and to put the ram horns on and to butt heads with people. Nine times out of ten, that really doesn't get you very far. Mm-hmm. The last one for me, as far as developing my core value, was what's best for kids. Because of the nature of work that I'm in, it always revolves around children or young adults as they graduate mm-hmm. high school. And so for me, any decision that I make, if it's in under the guise of what's best for kids, how I see it, how I perceive it, those are the hills that I die on. And that's why making some decisions that may be outside of the norm in this culture and climate that we're in right now, I'm dying on those hills. Hopefully mm-hmm. I won't stay dead, <laughs> but, but I, I am, they are non-negotiables for me. And I think even though people may philosophically disagree with them, I think they still, hopefully they respect the fact that I feel they're very, very important. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about building teams because in leadership, we need teams. What does it mean to have a good team, and how would you build one? Well, if you move into an organization, sometimes you inherit a team. And most of the time. I think one of the most important things that you need to value in a team are different perspectives. You don't want clones where they're bobbleheads and they're just bobbing their head up and down with everything that you're saying. Mm -hmm. You need people to tell you the big T truth, even though you may not want to hear it. You need to show them respect in the sense that you honor what they're saying and you're not going to bite their head off if they're going to tell you something that you don't want to hear. And you need to build in team-building exercises that work in the area of just getting to know people as people. Why is that important? Because I think uh, they need to see you outside of the role that you're in. You know, it's almost like when a student sees a teacher at food shopping, they're like, oh, my gosh, you actually eat food and you don't live at school. And each other, right? They need to see each other. They they do, and it humanizes you in many ways. And I think Mm -hmm. the higher you ascend, in leadership, the more necessary that is, whether it's a retreat outside of the organization, whether you're doing something that's team building, like you go to a sporting event, whatever it is, they need to see you as a person first and not a title. Very important. And I think for us here, at least, or any team that I've tried to build, a sense of humor is very important. Like I'm a big practical joker, so I'm playing jokes all the time. Mm -hmm. And to me, it, it gels people when you have the ability to not take yourself so seriously all the time and to think that you're always right because being right is a <laughs> that's real, a big one it, being, let's talk about all right so being right to me or trying to be right i should say is probably the biggest disability we all have it is the ultimate curse because when you try to be right that means there's somebody wrong there's a winner and a loser mm-hmm. and when you create winners and losers on teams or in an organization that builds resentment and all those other things start to follow over time So does it work all the time? No, because in some ways it's counterintuitive to how we operate and how we are built. But if you're aware of it and you try to make times to do those certain things, your organization is ultimately much better for it. And that's something that I had also been working on, even in my marriage. That's a life skill for many of us. So let's go back to team building. Do you incorporate that same thought with students? Yeah, I mean, I guess we liken it to project-based learning where 
We have kids collaborating with each other mm-hmm. on projects that are longitudinal in nature, not just a period for 40 minutes, but maybe a week or a month. And they have different roles within that project that they're working on, so they take turns you know, for whatever they're responsible for. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, when you think of the world as it is, I mean, these are all life skills that we need to develop over time. Middle school is really conducive for team building because middle schools have, if they're the right size, they have teams already built in in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade uh, with X amount of teachers, with students. But for me, you know, team building is is not just always all touchy-feely, feel-good stuff. It's about understanding your roles and responsibilities as well and to make sure everyone has the same definition of what they're responsible for. And to be honest with you, at a much higher level, at 30,000 feet, what it ultimately means to be leading your department, your building. And for me, it always boils down to making sure everyone understands you're here to serve. You're not here to dictate. You're not here to demand. You're here to make sure everyone gets what they need. And ultimately, the only way you do that is by working with each other. It's the only way you can do it. Not everyone believes in that. So there's dissonance because either the way they were brought up through the system or the way they were taught or how things were modeled for them, that's not congruent with the way they view leadership. It might be a totalitarian dictatorship of this is the way it needs to be. And for me, I wouldn't want anybody in my system with that mindset. So we try to move them out and they go to a place that embraces that philosophy. Mm. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just not conducive for where I am and not the way that I view leadership. So it's important to build community. I love this saying. This is a great quote. You have to know the arena in which you're playing. So when, when you're walking into an arena or an organization that's new, and you don't know who all the players are and the way they view X, Y, or Z, you need to take time and to figure out who the power players are. You know, I think John Maxwell in his book talks about when he was becoming a leader in his church and there was this one guy, he was like E.F. Hutton, right? So he really didn't say much, but everyone listened to him. Right. Right. So there's always a bunch of E.F. Huttons in your organization mm-hmm. as far as, they may not say much, but they are the go-to people. And I certainly learned that very quickly who the go-to people were so they can help me influence how we needed to turn this big tanker ship in some way. And that takes time. I interviewed Tom Dolan, and he went on a listening tour when he first started. So it kind of reminds me of that. It's great. I did the same thing. I actually qualitatively interviewed over 300 people, everybody in the organization who worked here. So first of all, nine-tenths of the people have never been in this office. So when they come here, they're like, oh, my goodness. Like, they thought they were in trouble. And so whether it was a kitchen staff, bus driver, custodial staff, certainly teachers, administrators, parents, board members, cross-section of everybody who's part of a school community. And I asked them three very simple questions. What's working? What's not working? And for self-preservation purposes, what do I have to do to make sure that I stick around for a while? Because at that point, in 10 years, I was the fourth superintendent. So there was some common denominator as far as leadership turnover for one reason or another. And I wanted from their perspective what it would take. And I have to say, the five-year plan that we have right now that we're rolling out is built on the input from the 300 people that I spoke to based on those three questions. Wow. Great questions. And they're very simple. You know, yeah. they don't need to be these crazy questions with four different parts to it. It's very simple. <laughs> not that yours are. No, not at all. <laughs> you know, I want to double back because you spoke about the three core values and how important that was. And you mentioned in passing some people that had influenced you. Are they coaches in your life? Are they mentors? Tell me about that. Well, it's interesting. 
I've never really had any mentors. It's one of the areas that I'm upset about. And that's why I think I'm so passionate about giving back to others and making sure they get what they need because I never had someone really, except for the one person who said, you need to really think about the way you're going about things. I wouldn't consider them a mentor. It was more of like a Dr. Phil come to Jesus meeting. Like mm -hmm. you, you need to look in the mirror, like one of those moments. But I, I've never had someone put their arm around me and say, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? And which is pretty traditional. You hear a lot of leaders and that happens to them. There was an absence or a void of that. And so that's why I always want to read about others and what qualities that they had that I can aspire to or relate to in some way. And that's why I'll never say no to anybody who wants to sit down with me and talk to me about, you know, can you help me with this or assist me with that? Because I never had that. And I want to make sure I give back in that way. Because I always said to myself, if I was ever fortunate enough to be in this position, I would always give back. But in turn, I tell the people I meet with, you better do the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, that we're doing here. But in essence, let's say Corey is one of your coaches right Corey, now. Yes. So Corey has been helping me be very focused on a few things as opposed to taking care of 10,000 things. You're focused on just two or three. And right now, it's cleaning up the way I go about my business and digging deeply into work instead of doing like a scratch and sniff mm -hmm. and working on one thing and moving it aside, working on another thing and moving it aside. And so he's helping me organize my day, my mind, and to think just past the workday how we influence others. And it's been very helpful to me. So Corey is the first person, and I told him this the other day, that I've ever had a relationship with in a professional way that has lasted more than a day or a session. Because I have a pretty good BS meter that I could sniff out pretty easily. And he is the first one to pass that test yeah. because he authentically wants to see you achieve whatever it is that you're looking to do. And when you're speaking with him, you actually feel like you're the only person in the room. And not many people make you feel that way when you're speaking to them. From that standpoint, you talk about making a connection with somebody. If you have the ability to make them feel like they're the only person in the room and mm -hmm. their opinion is the one that you really zoned into when there are other people around, you're doing something right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I do a lot of work with and I support coaching because I think it's a space where you can get to learn a lot about yourself and then move forward. And it doesn't mean you stay with one coach, but I certainly support it. And so I wanted to tap into that to see yeah, what you thought about I, it. I appreciate that. It's it's one of the things, you know, I don't have many regrets, but in, in some ways I wish I had more people to converse with because I think that's an important thing for leaders to really tap into, to people who have been there and to learn from their wisdom over time. I and mean, it's just really important. I happen to do mine through books and audio tapes at the time and, <laughs> and, and listen to books on tape, you know, Primal Leadership. And I'm a big Dan Goleman fan too with emotional mm -hmm. intelligence. So I learn things on my own and I try to practice it in my own way, but not having that feedback from others mm -hmm. is a vital part when you do have a mentor or a coach. So. Mike, tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life. Yeah, that's a great question, a challenge. And ultimately, if you're a leader, you're going to face many, many challenges. The leadership challenge that really comes to mind initially, I would say, knowing when the relationship needs to end with an organization. So like any relationship, you know, hopefully like friendships, you know, some friendships last forever and some dissipate over time for one reason or another. And when you are in an organization, whether it's a school organization or some other one, and you're leading that charge, sometimes after you've tried X, Y, and Z, and you're there just for a paycheck as opposed to trying to promote something, 
the most challenging thing is do you stay with homeostasis something that's very comfortable and you know you can stay there for the next 10 15 years and glide by maybe not getting much intrinsically out of what you're doing but you're getting a paycheck or do you challenge yourself and say to yourself you need to take a risk and figure out what you can do in a different place because it's the right thing for you to do spiritually professionally in every which way and I think for some people it's making that leap to do it so for me I was in an organization for a while and I flatlined in the sense of okay I think there's really not much more we can do here at least I can do maybe somebody else can augment it in a different way but I could have stayed there for the next 10 years if I wanted to and, and collected a nice paycheck a nice paycheck and but I knew for me I wouldn't be able to live with myself it's a challenge when you get to that fork in the road and then you make that decision to make that leap of faith and say this is the right thing to do even though you're uprooting and you're starting over and you know going into the next phase of whatever you're doing there's a lot of work ahead of you and a lot of work that people may not want to have happen in some way Mm -hmm. um, because maybe there's some cultural dissonance there but that's what I did and I have to say I'm glad I did that but it's a challenge when you get to that fork in the road. So you didn't know whether you were going from the frying pan into the fire, right? No. Well, that's the thing. You know, it's the unknown. So, you know, we're not Nostradamus. We don't have a little crystal ball and we Mm -hmm. we know what's going to happen. It's always the fear of the unknown. And I think the biggest difficulty with leadership that I see is homeostasis is a great place to be. It's like you're in lukewarm water. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. And it feels really good because... You're not stretching the rubber bands and no one's getting too upset and you're just being. Getting to that fork and making that real decision, knowing there are implications for you professionally and probably personally because it's going to affect your home life is a very difficult thing to do. But I think the best leaders don't know what's going to happen and they have enough faith in themselves and their skill sets and they have enough resolve and they understand their core values. That's why it's really important that you define what those core values are because you need to lean on them often, especially when it's challenging. I'm glad I did, and I don't think enough people do that. Being in positions like that where you're in homeostasis, and this happens quite often, you and I both know, in education, how does that affect kids? It affects kids because it affects the whole system. It does. It mm-hmm. rises and falls on leadership. Yep, as John everything Maxwell rises and falls on leadership. So you look at a board of education, you look at a superintendent, and of course I'm speaking in educational terms. If the philosophy is... We're going to over-test kids. We're going to make sure everyone is so super standardized that we're creating widgets, that we're going to treat teachers like we don't value their professional judgment. Everything trickles down to kids and what happens with Mm -hmm. them. And then, of course, it segues into the parents at home and the community at large. So for me, in this day and age where these mandates from the state level and the federal level, you have two different directions. You can comply and be a bobblehead and say, okay, well, it is what it is, and we have to do this. Or you can say, I don't think this is really the best way for kids, and we're going to try to control the things that we can and influence outside the best Mm -hmm. that we can. And I see some people doing that. I wish I saw more people doing it. But I read somewhere, you can't want for others. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the hardest thing for me. I do want for others. And if people aren't ready to move in that direction, you can't force them. But you can model for them. Absolutely. And that's what we're trying to do here. Be the change that you wish to see in the world. So tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped you and the lives of those around you. Professionally, I would say the greatest 
success so far is having a board of education and a community understand the importance of having a plan in place that really serves the needs of all of our students. I could pretty much guarantee if you go around and you ask school districts across Long Island or maybe even New York State, all 730 or 40 school districts, I hate the word strategic plan, but if you ask what their five-year plan is, most don't have anything or have any document. And if they do, it's usually one page or two pages. Our greatest success, and I'm going to say our, the collective we, the mm -hmm. 65 people who worked on our five-year plan, is we got a group of people that is stratified as far as who they represent here and developed a comprehensive plan as far as where they want to see this district five years from now. That's not an easy thing to do because you're getting a bunch of people who have different perspectives, different opinions, all agreeing to something and to want the board to approve it and then to finance it and to understand on the taxpayers backs this is what we're going to do and in many ways it changes the landscape of how we go about our business here i'm most proud that the community is a part of that process mm -hmm. and we're in the midst of making that happen right now and what has been the biggest change right now it's short-term wins so john cotter in icebergers melting one of my favorite books we talk about changing an organization he outlines eight different things stages that you have to go through so the first one for me is short-term wins and so the first short-term win and the thing that's the easiest thing to get out there is the needs of our elementary students where they've been deprived for so long so you may have heard we've doubled our recess here. Yes, I did hear that. So we went from, and the fact that's even a story is kind of crazy to me, but we went from 20 minutes to 40 minutes because we're honoring the fact that children need to play. It's the highest form of learning, self-directed play, mm -hmm. not us hovering over them and saying you need to do this and that. 20 minutes to 40 minutes, we have yoga, we have meditation, K through 8, and we also have embedded in the school day an hour and a half of structured, unstructured play for kindergarten through second grade. And on top of that, we've added 30% to our staff as far as social workers and psychologists because we're really focusing on the social and emotional needs of our children right now and the physical needs. Significant shift. And you talk about the short-term wins that we've seen from the community, but most importantly, from our children. In the three weeks that we've been in school, I have never seen children as happy as they are right now. And I can actually cry thinking about it. I'm, I'm holding tears I, back I, I'm, thinking I'm serious. about it. I was outside. I visited all of our seven elementary schools, and I'm tearing up right now. And I'm watching our kids during recess, and I just saw nothing but pure bliss and joy. And they're being kids. And I mean, I've been you know, in this for 20 years or so. I haven't seen that in a very, very long time. Not since when I was teaching. And that joy is so connected with how well they do in school. There is, it's not causation, it is a correlation as far as them being happy in school and out of school. There's nobody that will ever change my mind about that. I'm with you. And it's I'm something that's very easy to do. What we're doing here is not rocket science. The rocket science is really promoting it and moving it forward. That's where it comes into play because there's so many different mindsets and thoughts. And I'm very passionate about it, but for me, it's probably the best decision I've ever made. I think it's extremely wise because we don't teach social emotional nope. competencies. We don't teach how to develop that. And mm -hmm. the fact that you're honing in on that, I think that's extremely wise. And I love it. It's part of the great work that you're doing here. Thank so you. what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working condition or climate? <laughs> this is the way I looked at it. Whenever I was somewhere, and I've been in many places where I was not happy, I always played a trick or a game that this is a paid internship. Probably not the best advice, but it's what got me through mm 
mm-hmm. until I moved to the next place, wherever that was, and the relationship ran its course. Um, it's a paid internship, and I'm going to learn as much as far as what's working and what's not working to make sure I don't repeat those things. Whether it's working for someone and I don't like those behaviors, I'll make sure I'll never emulate them. So you try to glean as much as you can and then understand there's a great song by George Harrison, All Things Will Pass. I always had that. It's it's, it's one of my favorite (laughs) songs. And whenever I got to the point where I'm like, I can't do this anymore, this is too much, I'd throw that song on. When you're living in that moment, you think it's going to last forever. But the reality is it's not. You need to understand at some point this will pass. You make the best of that situation. You learn what you can. And if you're there and you're making money, it's a paid internship. And then you realize what you want to do and move on and to be very diligent in doing so. That's wonderful advice. You learn what you don't want to be. I learned probably more in that arena than anything else. (laughs) That's crazy, but it's true. Yeah. So many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? I actually think there's something wrong with me because all I want to do is learn. You're addicted to learning, aren't you? I am addicted to learning, and I realize the older I get, the more I don't know. And it's almost like a curse in some ways. The older you get, you realize you really don't know much of anything. So I'm a big fan of TED Talks. I listen to TED Talks all the time in my car. I give someone to my my heart. (laughs) I I listen to podcasts and podcasts. I do. When I was working in Shelter Island, I would probably go through audiobooks ten a month, and then TED Talks, podcasts all the time. But for me, I do love reading. And now with this new free time that I have, because I won't be on my phone all the time, I will be uh, learning quite a bit. The books that I I just finished, I usually leave here. They're usually talking points for others. You know, if I recommend books, I like to have them in front of me. And if they want to read it, Mm -hmm. then I ask them to take it and just bring it back when they're done. So I'm always reading. I'm always listening. I'm always learning. And the day that that stops is the day I am no longer in this position. That's great. To find people that actually are addicted to learning um, is wonderful. It's why I'm doing this. I I I love listening. You must must meet so many very interesting people. I am. You can imagine. So what have you read recently that our listeners should read? Well, if they're in an education system, I would recommend a book by Pazi Salberg, which is about the Finnish school system, Finnish Schools 2.0. And basically what Pazi does... And I had the opportunity to work with him about two years ago. The Finnish system is a totally different system than the United States, and you probably know this already. If you look at PISA rankings, which are the international rankings for 15-year-olds across the globe, they go with uh, literacy skills and math skills and science skills, and the Finns are in the top three all the time. But the irony is they do everything the complete opposite way (laughs) as far as what we do here. They have recess 15 minutes every hour. Their teachers are valued so much that they are aligned with doctors. They feel that they are as high as you can be as far as a profession. But to become a teacher in Finland is very difficult. So the parameters and the schooling that you need, it's not an easy thing to do. But it's a free system. It's a different society. And that makes sense because you're educating the world, the future. I mean, everyone's been touched by an educator in some Mm -hmm. way, right? Mm So anyway, for this particular book, the way they view special education is totally different. The way they view the whole child, the way they view testing, the over-testing of our kids, the way they view standards. If you look at their standards compared to our standards here, complete opposite, and yet the American system is doing everything they can to make sure that they even go more of the opposite way of the fins and expecting better results. 
That's crazy. It, it's, it's clinically insane as far as I'm concerned. And you have people in positions who are making these decisions, whether it's at the federal or the state level, they send their kids to private schools. They have different sets of norms, different sets of ex- expectations. So they believe in Montessori ways of teaching our kids those methodologies. They embrace the whole child for their own kids. But when it comes to public school kids, it's totally different. And that's why I'm as vocal as I am. So when I read something like this from Fozzie Salberg, that I think if you're an educator, you should read it, it gives you the research behind why this is effective and what we're doing here is not effective and some things that we can actually do here. Not to emulate them totally, but bits and pieces. And learn as educators, just learn. (laughs) You would think. The people who would want to learn the most are educators. But in some ways, they are the most resistant to change. So tell us what you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities that you have. I have five kids at home. So once I escape out of being in the house, my kids range from ages 1 to 15. So it is a busy household. So once I'm here and I drop my children off at school, I go to a place on the way to work and I meditate for about 10 minutes. Very quick. Corey's allowed me to do that and it's really helped me with that and it grounds me i need two grounding wires for me to move forward before the day begins meditating and i visit a school every single morning so i'll visit an elementary school a middle school or a high school i'll walk the hallways and it reminds me of why i'm here and why i'm doing what i'm doing i'll see kids in the classroom i'll talk to teachers i'll talk to parents and it allows me to recalibrate and to get ready for the day for the work that's at hand and once I'm grounded in both ways then I'm ready to hit the ground running because my days can last between 12 and 16 hours so in order for me to feel rejuvenated and refreshed those two grounding procedures have been very very helpful to me and at night before I go to bed I usually journal and I usually go to bed 12 so you get like four to five hours sleep yeah but I also take care of myself and that's important. Speak to that. Sure. So I have no vices whatsoever. I, I take this position so seriously that I don't put myself in any bad positions. I don't drink alcohol. And I don't judge people who do, by the way. I just mm-hmm. know in order for me to be operating on all cylinders, I want to make sure I'm always present. I'm a vegan. So everything I eat and put inside my body is very clean. It just sounds like an extreme thing to do, but for me, it allows me to operate, at least I think, at a very high level. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of walking meditation as well. While I'm here, that's why I cleared out my back area over there so I can walk and meditate. But the journaling, once I have a long day, allows me to recap things that I learned for the day. I can then take and bring over to the following day. And it's all interwoven into one thing and one thing only. And it's the reason why we're here. What is your purpose? Your purpose here is to serve all 7,800 of our students who are here. In order for me to do that, I need to treat myself well. And by doing that, I have to sacrifice some things. So when others are partying or doing whatever. You um, show up, say, hey. I show up and I say, how are you? (laughs) Looks like you're having a good time. I'll have a good time with you. I'm just not going to do the things that are going to affect me adversely, Mm -hmm. either the next day or over time. And I have no problem doing that. And how do you maintain that balance? I mean, you have five kids at home. How do you maintain that balance? I have a wife who the Pope will saint probably uh, in the next five years. Like Abigail Adams. She she is an amazing woman. She's an administrator too as well. She's in the Comstock School District and district office. So she understands what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have jobs to do at home. You know, we're very diligent as far as what our responsibilities are. I have all the things I need to do and make sure the kids are ready in this way and 
she does everything else and then some. So Okay, so you know, we've come to our last question. If you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? That's such a great question. The one piece of advice that I would give to me is to enjoy the journey. And it's very hard to enjoy a journey that you don't know how it's going to turn out. I remember when I first started interviewing for leadership positions, and I was like the Buffalo Bills. I'd get to the Super Bowl, but I wouldn't win. <laughs> you know, I would get there, but not quite get the position. Right. And I remember you feel deflated. You feel like you're not good enough. You're wondering why. And you don't know the circumstances that revolve around why you may or may not get it. Mm-hmm. But knowing where I am now, as opposed to where I was my younger self, in trying to the best of your ability, understand that this is a journey and you only get one shot at it and you really need to enjoy it. Even when you don't get the position that you aspire Mm -hmm. for, I really believe there's always a reason for it. Mm -hmm. And I think back, if I got the positions that I always wanted that I didn't get, I wouldn't be where I am right now. And I couldn't picture being somewhere else. So I'm thankful I didn't get that that makes any sense. Of course, that's wonderful advice. Mike, I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to our website at masterleadership.org to get show notes for this episode and to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of our exceptional educational leadership coaches that are featured on this podcast. Until next time, bye.